This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Community Legal Services in Philadelphia, which has an exciting new podcast about systemic racism in the law called How's That Legal? Hello, everyone. I'm Key Tobar. I'm a civil legal aid attorney, history enthusiast, and chief equity and inclusion officer at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. Welcome to How Is That Legal, the podcast where we break down examples of systemic racial inequity in the law and policy and talk to experts whose stories of injustice will make you ask, how in the world is that legal? As a queer Black woman, I've looked at the world around me and asked myself the question, how is that legal for pretty much my entire life? I grew up in the Delta South to a working class single parent, and as early as seven years old, I knew in my gut that our financial circumstances were immoral at worst and inequitable at best. Our expert guests come from a wide range of backgrounds and experiences. They'll walk us through history and put names to the laws and policies that create the disparities we see every day. But I promise not to leave you stuck with knowledge and without solutions. We'll also talk about what's currently being done and what must be done to create a world free of injustice. And that's the part I'm really excited about. It's a conversation you won't want to miss. So be sure to subscribe to How Is That Legal wherever you get your podcasts. How Is That Legal is produced by Row Home Productions. I'm your host, Keto Bar. Back when I was a reporter at the Philadelphia City Paper, one of my beats was, to put it generally, how poor people were constantly getting screwed over by every single facet of the system. And I used to work closely with CLS all the time because they do such important legal and advocacy work to defend poor people. They were, in other words, really key sources of mine. I hope you'll check out their excellent new podcast. Their episode with past dig guest Dorothy Roberts is especially good. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The reason you might not know much about the Sahel, or maybe you don't even know what the Sahel is, is because the world system has rendered that region an extreme periphery. Today's interview is with Rahman Idrissa, and we're discussing Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso. Today, those countries are known, to the extent that they're known at all, as a hotbed of Islamic jihadist conflict, as a transit point for African migrants heading toward Europe, or perhaps for its music. But the region and those armed conflicts that have for the past decade overwhelmed it are complex ones rooted in a political and economic history stretching back to struggles over the slave trade through French colonialism to the post-colonial imposition of neoliberalism. We can't really understand today's world system without looking at that system's absolute margins. And that's what we're doing today. It's a really fascinating interview. But first, this podcast's mission, as you might have deduced, is to strive for a total analysis, which means that I hope to do an episode on pretty much every country, every topic, every period of time possible, as long as I'm still reading and breathing. What's amazing to me, having done this for a few years now, is that so many of you find that so useful to understand the world, particularly so many of you who are out there organizing to change the world. Our listenership has doubled in the last two years. 
which I'm grateful for. But the only reason it's possible for me to spend so much time on this show, a lot of time on this show, and for us to give it away with no paywall to every single listener who wants to listen is because those of you who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com. And as if putting out this show isn't enough to earn your support, we also, in our great beneficence, have thank you gifts on offer. First, a contribution of any size at all, and we will send you our weekly newsletter by email. If you're a supporter and you're not getting those newsletters yet, please do email us. And if you contribute at least $10 a month, we will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig coffee mug. You can also put other beverages in it, of course. I get an email every time someone makes a contribution, and it's always a very bright spot in my inbox. So please, contribute what you can. It'll just take a moment. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Last, before I get going, sorry, not sorry about my dismal French pronunciation. Okay, here's Rahman Idrissa, a senior researcher at Leiden University's African Studies Center. He is currently working on a history of the Songhai Empire and the birth of the modern world. I'm posting links to his writing on the Sahel, which he's written on for the New Left Review, the New York Review of Books, and the London Review of Books in the show notes. Rahman Idrissa, welcome to The Dig. Yeah, thank you. Before we get into everything, what is the Sahel? What countries, peoples, and ecologies define the region? Okay, so the Sahel, the name itself means the shore. So it's supposed to be this arid step right south of the Sahara Desert and kind of crosses West uh, Africa from the Atlantic Ocean to, to the Nile region, actually. So, uh, but mostly what people understand by the Sahel today when it's spoken about in the, in the media is really the West African part of it. And the country is concerned. Uh, you have the Central Sahel countries like Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger. Uh, Senegal is actually part of the Sahel, even though many people don't think of it as being part of the Sahel, uh, and Chad, of course. So it, it's it's a kind of ecological region. The, the, the term itself is ecological. It has to do with this area where the, the desert transition into the savanna. But it's also a civilizational term in a way, because it's this place where sub-Saharan Africa, just the western part of it, meets uh, the the culture of Islam, of North Africa, of the Berbers and the Arabs. And it's also known as the Sudanic region, or more specifically, the Western and the Western Sudanic region. Yes, exactly. So Sudan is more of a human geography term, I would say, because it means it means blacks. So it means uh, the blacks. Actually, the, the entire name is Bilader Sudan, the country of the blacks. Over the past decade, the Sahel has been hit hard by these armed conflicts that have crossed borders drawn in French and Russian foreign intervention, and then ultimately led to a series of coups. You write, quote, A feature of the Western war on terror that seems to come out of fable rather than reality is an inability to see the enemy. In fact, it is an inability to define the enemy. In the Sahel, the French state has settled on Islamist terrorists, a sequence of adjectives that denote elusive subjects surging out of horizons of pure violence. We're going to get into a lot of detailed history, 
But before we do that, lay out the basics. What what is the scope? What are the actors and stakes of the present conflict? And what what does this really superficial reduction of it all to the terms set by the war on terror? What does that obscure? It's the the conflict is evolving. So at at the beginning, at the outset, actually there is a part of it that <laughs> that uh, the the West did not respond to because there was already violence in the Sahel before this jihadist war that is, or this Islamic terrorist war that, that has been defined as such by the Western discourse. There were a set of conflicts between herds and, and, um, and farmers because of the ecological changes in the region, because of demographic changes in the region. Uh, but those, since those conflicts were opposing Sahelians, they weren't seen as Problems. So the, the problem emerged when this element of Islam and terrorism became <laughs> more alarming in the eyes of the, of the West. And uh, the way in which it started to become alarming is through kidnappings in the, in the early 2000s after the um, Algerian Salafi militants who fled Algeria at the end of the decade-long war in the 1990s and settled in the South Sahara and in the Sahel region, especially in Mali, wanted to stay relevant uh, as, as adversaries of the Algerian state and also wanted to, to access financial resources. They began uh, kidnapping uh, Western humanitarian workers, development workers, tourists, and so the, this danger of Islamic terrorism, the, the first phase that it took was, you know, in the form of those abductions. Then, by the late 2010s, the, these Algerian jihadists who were settled in, the, in northern Mali really kind of became a power in, in that region. And, and the French already were very worried about that um, and wanted the Malian government to do something about it which the Malian government was not very willing to do because of the risks that that entailed. And then in uh, 2011, we all remember that, uh, there was this period of the Arab Springs and, uh, and the uprising in, in Libya, and that uprising was helped by NATO countries, especially uh, France, Britain, and, and the U.S., uh, which led to the, to the collapse of the Gaddafi regime in Libya, and that actually kind of set a, a chain of events. You had, out of these older conflicts that I was mentioning in, that were happening in the Sahel, one of those older conflicts was the conflict called uh, the Tuareg Rebellion. I really, I don't really like that uh, that term, Tuareg Rebellion. It's kind of <laughs> a, a definition of the conflict uh, by the West. It's a bit more complex than that. But anyway, there were those rebellions in Mali and Niger uh, in the past. And at the beginning of the 21st century, Gaddafi uh, played a role in, uh, in appeasing the Tuareg by bringing many of the rebel leaders in, in, in Tripoli, in Libya. What the collapse of Gaddafi regime did to that initiative was that those rebel leaders went back to Niger and Mali. And the, the ones that went back to uh, Mali actually started a new rebellion there. And so that rebellion happened in, a, in an area where the jihadists, uh, Algerian jihadists were already powerful. So at some point there was a convergence between the Tuareg rebels and, uh, and, the, and the jihadists. And so that's when the, this, problem, this problem of very complex set of conflicts uh, began. And the West 
uh, to ju justify and legitimize its intervention. By the West, here I mean the French especially. They needed to define or <laughs> simplify the conflicts and, and create an enemy that they can fight. Hence this idea of the Islamist terrorist. We're going to go back over that history of the conflict in more detail. But first, let's go way back in time and then work our way back to the present. When you write that when Europeans first wrote down observations of the region in the late 17th century, that they were really impressed by what they saw, what was the political and social organization of the Sahel, or more generally maybe the broader Sudanic region, in the centuries leading up to European colonization, at the time you write that the, quote, greater Sudanic system was a center unto itself. What regional system prevailed in the Western Sudan before the onset of colonialism inaugurated the modern world system that we live in today? What, what is interesting here is that the, the condition in which those first European observers found the Sahel Sudan was actually a condition of crisis. So it was not even uh, the best condition, but they were still impressed by the, you know, the fact that you, you, you did have efficient state organizations and you had this tolerance of cultural diversity, religious diversity that was lacking in, uh, in, in Europe. These are the kind of elements that really struck them because of the, of the obvious difference with Europe in the 17th century, where you had, which was a continent that was coming out of these uh, religious wars of the 17th, 16th and 17th century. The, but the great era of uh, Sahelian and Sudanic civilization by the 17th century has already kind of ended uh, following the, especially the fall of the Songhai Empire, uh, which was the, the third in a series of large states that basically produced a kind of imperial peace in the region. You know, in this context of, of imperial peace, people were able to develop many uh, traditions of governance, uh, traditions of commerce, and stable economies, but the fall of Songhai in the in the nineteen in the in the in the late sixteenth century actually put the region in crisis. And that was because of a Moroccan invasion. An invasion, you write really interestingly, an invasion that was motivated by Morocco wanting to catch up to Spain, which they saw colonizing the Americas. Yes, the idea really came from there. The king of Morocco who attacked uh, Songhai, uh, a man called Moulay Ahmad al-Mansur, came uh, to power after a battle. I think it was in 1578, a battle called the Battle of the Three Kings. The Three Kings were the king of Portugal who invaded Morocco in an attempt of uh, bringing the Crusades back to life. Uh, this king, Don Sebastian, uh, was a young man who was very much in love with the idea of chivalry and, and Christian chivalry. He was a kind of crown uh, Don Quixote, if you will. So he invaded Morocco, and uh, the king of Morocco at the time, I can't remember his name at this time, was was sick, but he has this, his brother, who was this Moulay Hamad al-Mansur. So at that battle, the battle of Al-Qasar-Kivir, Don Sebastian died, the king of Morocco died, and Moulay Ahmad al-Mansur came to power. 
And uh, the death of the king of, of Portugal was actually a huge blow because it basically ended the ruling dynasty of Portugal, the Avis dynasty. And it meant that Portugal was going to be incorporated to Spain for almost a century. But the big thing for Mullah Ahmad al-Mansur was that he captured a large number of Portuguese nobility. And that brought to his treasure uh, a huge uh, stock of ransom money and gold. And it kind of really woke him up to the possibilities that lay, you know, across the Atlantic because he knew that this is, this is where the gold was coming from. He attempted uh, even to uh, broker an alliance with England and attack Iberian uh, colonies in Americas and, and, you know, just get a cut of this imperial business. And then he realized that, well, gold, gold is coming from this Sahel Sudan region. We have always kind of wanted to attack them as Moroccans, but in the past... Our weaponry were basically the same. Now we have all these new weapons that were coming from this Mediterranean uh, <laughs> uh, war stage, and they don't have them, so we can actually attack them with that. So that's, that's how he decided to, to attack, attack Songhai. And the interesting thing here is that most of the people who he used to attack Songhai were mercenaries of Iberian origin. So the same people who conquered Latin America, South America were also the one who actually, uh, the same type of people at least, who destroyed Songhai. That's pretty unreal. <laughs> and yet, and yet, even amid this power vacuum of the post-Songhai period, the region was still pretty impressive to outside observers. Yes, because well, uh, the post-Songhai there was a kind of period of chaos, but then out of chaos came some some organization. In fact, the difference between the the post-Songhai and, and the Songhai era is it kind of, the, the fall of Songhai kind of spelled the end of civil, uh, imperial civilization, but not, not uh, state building. Actually, you have a multiplication of state building. It reminds me of what happened at the end of Roman Empire, where you had all those new states that kind of basically emerged out of the corpse of the Roman Empire. So that's what we had. But of course, building new states is very violent. So that's, that's what gives the sense of chaos uh, to the period. However, I should also say that, uh, especially in a very particular part of the Sahel Sudan, this part that we uh, see uh, being uh, dominated by uh, jihadist groups today, there are two main actors who emerged and did not immediately build states, uh, the Tuareg and the Fulani, warrior classes, I should actually specify that because these are very complex societies and and sometimes we speak of them as just ethnicities, but uh, it's really specific groups within those ethnic groups who acted in certain ways. And uh, I mention this because part of the reasons why the Songhai Empire was founded in the late uh, 15th century was to uh, impose a level of, of peace or lack of conflict that would be uh, good for commerce and good for trade. And uh, man who founded the Songhai Empire, a king called Sunni Ali. His main adversaries in that task were those warrior classes of the Tuareg and, and the Fulani. And so the, the end of the Songhai Empire actually brought those actors uh, into the region. And they were really essentially predatory actors in the sense that they were not, they're not building states, but they're 
creating insecurity in terms of almost like the Vikings or something like that, you know, plundering commercial cities or being almost like pirates in the desert and attacking caravans. And so they're kind of disturbing uh, trade. So, so that, that is a big element because the, this power of the Tuareg and the Fulani warrior classes came back. And the, the conflict that we see today is directly connected to that. And I can explain how <laughs> when we come, we come to that part of our conversation. Another interesting thing you write about the pre-colonization period is that the Negritian royalty had, had even practiced something that looks a bit like the French separation of church and state or laicite, all, all at a time, of course, when the French were really definitely not practicing laicite. Y- you write, quote, Islam was present in the Sudanic region, but as a guest, not a master. And if in some places ruling figures adhered to it, they were obliged to pander to local creeds. And that's fascinating because today the West tends to portray the entirety of the so-called Islamic world as this backward land before time. But in fact, you write, quote, the social structures of the Western Sudan, caste-like status groups bound together by custom and heritage, underpinned by stout religious foundations, formed a compact obstacle to mass Islamization through to the 20th century. How was it that these forms of stratification formed this obstacle to mass Islamization? Yeah, good question. And also the origins of the, there are many theories about the origins. We do not know exactly uh, how these status groups uh, were settled. One story that we have is about this, uh, maybe you heard about it, but I'm not sure. Many people know about it who uh, look into affairs of uh, the history of the region, but it's not necessarily a well-known fact. This Kuru-Kanfuga Compact, that founded the Mali Empire in the 13th century. After a series of strifes, there was this uh, man called Sunjata Keita who managed to create a confederation, an alliance of the main Mandi. Uh, Mandi are the groups who are at the basis of this, the Mali Empire. The main Mandi uh, families and clans, they basically signed on, on, a, on a compact at the, in a plane called Kurukan Fuga. And in, in, that, in that compact, every clan was assigned a certain status and also different uh, vocations and occupations like the griot, the level workers, the smiths, uh, they were uh, granted certain uh, rights and, and duties and obligations. So a very organized uh, hierarchical society was created according to that story in Kurukan Fuga. And since the Mali Empire was a hegemon, uh, for uh, almost three centuries, this organization spread across uh, basically the, the area uh, where it had this big influence. It's a kind of convincing story to me when I consider the fact that the only part of the Sahel, Sudan, that was not incorporated in the, in the Malian influence, this is the Hausa country, Hausaland, which is now in northern Nigeria and in, in eastern part of Niger, does not have this, this structure. Uh, so structure really seems to have to do with, with the Mali Empire. So, so you have that. And the, those status groups were not just rooted on occupation. They, that's the, 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 the immediate thing that we see is that people were defined by the kind of things that they do. So, for instance, farmers have their own status, uh, warriors uh, and griot. The only people who did not really have a status were the slaves. Although maybe I would take that back. They did have a status, but they didn't have 
an autonomous status, let's say. And so all of those statuses were also rooted in religion. And for Islam, of course, uh, and that's true for Christianity as well, this was not religion. If you're not a Muslim, you actually basically do not have a religion. <laughs> but, but it is a religion in the sense that because of the fact that people believe in, in certain forces, they have the rights, they, they have cults, they do not adhere to the Islamic message. And the only way for Islam to be able to spread in such societies where if this hierarchy, this hierarchical system was dismantled, and it was never dismantled until colonization. So it created hurdles and obstacles. And the only way Islam was able to actually penetrate the system was to create its own status group within this system of status groups. You write that a key turning point in the making of the modern Sahel was the late 17th century's Marabou War, which pit a ruling class in the Senegal Valley, armed by the French Senegal Company, against the Marabou, who were Muslim clerics, you write, who organized what you describe as the citizen class to fight for an end to the slave trade. Who was that ruling class in the Senegal Valley, and what was their relationship with the French, and then who were the Marabou? in this citizen class that they mobilized. And, and then how did both the slave trade and Islam figure into the conflict? So, there, there, yeah, there are things that have to be better defined here, I guess. The people who I call the citizen class, they have specific names in, these, in the languages of the region, of course. So I just kind of translated those concepts. It, it's basically the, the people who did not have any type of restrictions tied to their status group. And, and those people in practice were the farmers. So most of the farmers who were neither griot nor artisan workers nor slaves. So they're almost like defined in the negative. They didn't have the restrictions that were tied to the status of a griot, the status of an of artisan craft worker, I mean or the status of a slave. For instance, intermarriage, you know, they, they could marry wherever they wanted. Normally, if you're a slave, you cannot marry outside of that group. If you are an artisan, you, you do not do it, etc. So, so the citizens have the broader uh, range of rights and uh, political rights of, of participation. So that's why I call them citizens. However, they were uh, kind of inferior to the... Uh, to the ruling class who were like aristocrats. And, and so there was a kind of social contradiction there between the, the, those that they call the citizens and, and the aristocrats. And uh, one of the outcome of this chaotic period that I described that came out of the fall of the, the, the end of the imperial civilization of the Sahel Sudan uh, is that this, this period of, of building new states was very violent and came with many wars. And during those wars, many people were enslaved. In fact, slavery changed a bit in that period because during the imperial period, the slave slavery existed, of course, and there was slave trade uh, with, with the Muslim world. There was a trans-Saharan slave trade, but it was very regulated. It was highly regulated because uh, those imperial states had the capacity to control and administer the trade. The dis- disappearance of this imperial control means that many, many small states can also engage in, uh, in this uh, slave trade. So it kind of increased the, the violence and um, intensity of, of, of the slave trade. 
then you had uh, these citizen classes who began to be threatened by, by this, whereas the, uh, the, the ruling classes, the warrior classes, were the one who benefited from that. So what happened in this, the, the place where this, this became most severe is the Senegal, Senegal, is Senegal, because Senegal is on the Atlantic coastline, and that's where the Europeans who were buying uh, so many slaves uh, landed, especially this island of, of Saint-Louis du Senegal, where the French had this trading post. Uh, one of the main business of the trading post it was to buy slaves. So, of course, there was a kind of alliance of interest between the French traders and warrior classes of the Wolof, Tukulor and Moorish societies, which were the societies that were resident there. And so it came to the point that they were <laughs> attacking the citizens of their own states to enslave them and, and get, get, get access to weapons, to horses, because these are the things also that allow them to maintain their status as warriors. You needed horses, you needed weapons, and the French fed them those things because they wanted to harvest slaves, basically. So in, in, that, in that context, many people in the region were not Muslims, but some were. And especially in the lower Senegal Valley, the part of the region that is called Futaturu, which is people populated by, by a Fulani group called the Tukulor. And that region came under more pressure than any other because of their location, basically. Uh, they were between uh, Mauritania, where you had these Moorish uh, warrior, cla warrior classes, and the Wolof country. And many of them were actually converting to Islam for very uh, specific reasons. And they were being enslaved and sold to Christians. So, so that kind of provoked the uh, revolutionary sentiments. There's no other word for that. Among the clerical sub subgroups, in those societies, because uh, you do not enslave a Muslim. If you are Muslim, you do not enslave a Muslim. And above all, you do not sell a Muslim to a Christian. <laughs> and the, this, um, these actions of, of enslaving citizens also kind of, uh, you know, stress the, the fragility of those states, the, the kind of heightened the social contradictions between the, 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 within those, those, those states. When you have such a level on an intensity of social contradiction, you are in a pre-revolutionary moment. And, and basically, uh, this, this Marabou uh, exploited this pre-revolutionary moment with the objective in the end to install an imamate, a state led by an imam that is by, by a religious learned person who would establish the law of God knowing that when that is established, Muslims will no longer be sold into slavery. Uh, but at the same time, this message actually attracted also the non-Muslim because they were also being uh, attacked by those aristocratic groups. So it became, it was not just a religious um, uh, revolution, it was also a social revolution. And the Marabou lost the war, but you write that in losing, they still transformed the place of Islam in the Western Sudan. How did that failed Islam-inspired social revolution against slavery, what did that all mean for, for Islam and slavery in the region? They, they lost uh, through the force of arms, 
but they also kind of won because they changed uh, the, the calculations of many people in the region, including the rulers. Actually, some of the rulers uh, started to associate Muslim clerics to their governance because they realized, okay, so these people can become a problem. <laughs> I, I better kind of draw them into my, my, my regime. But the main thing that happened here was that the Tukulor, that's why I mentioned them, those people in the, in the Futatur region, the majority of the citizen class there, and the citizen class was always the most numerous class in all of those societies, became Muslims. So now you have this critical mass of, of Muslims in a, in, a, in a specific uh, part of the Sahel Sudan. And in fact, the impetus of all the jihads uh, that then, you know, kind of erupted across the region in the 18th and 19th century really kind of began there in that, in that part of the region because of those events. The Western Sudan ultimately fell under firm European control at the turn of the 20th century. What were the major political orders that govern, governed the region on the eve of formal colonization and why, why did each fall so rapidly in the face of advancing French forces? Of course, the, the, the colonization was actually the end point of a long process of transformation. Basically, uh, at the beginning, the French did not want to colonize. The idea was not to occupy and colonize the region. It was like merc- mercantilist trading posts. Yeah. Absolutely. The idea was to organize trade and, and make the most of it. And at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, the slave trade was kind of petering out. And the, the new type of trade that was becoming really important in the region was uh, peanuts and gum arabic. But especially peanuts started to become really, really important uh, in the region for a variety of reasons because of industrial applications that, uh, you know, it, the oil can be put uh, into in, in, in France, uh, etc. So what, what that did was that... Um, the old convergence of interest between French traders and the aristocrats <laughs> began to be replaced by a new convergence of interest between French traders and the farmers. And uh, the farmers started to become uh, more powerful and more autonomous in, in, in society, at least when they were in these um, trading relations with, with the French. And another uh, important detail here is that when, for some reason, I can explain why, but when farming communities start to engage in trade and, and commerce, they also are more likely to become Muslims because trade and commerce in the Sahel Sudan has been organized more by, by Muslim communities than by any other type of community. So, so and and Muslim merchants and clerics and sometimes they're both the same or they're coming from the same families, started to become the leaders of society instead of the old aristocracy. So you have a process of decline of the aristocracy uh, in in the region uh, that took place during the 19th century, and at some point the French thought that the aristocrats were just becoming a threat. Uh, to their commerce because uh, they were still um, pillaging <laughs> the farming communities, yeah, but especially a subset of the aristocratic groups, which is a, a very strange subset. They were actually slaves 
but military slaves. So they have this status of slaves. Like Malmuks. Exactly. It's the same kind of configuration. But they're like Mamluk who are also samurai. Samurai without, without a lord, without an overlord. So, so it was like, it basically brought up the kind of Wild West situation where you had those Mamluk samurai doing whatever they want. The French, the French call them marauders. That's, that's the name that they, they gave to them in, in, during those times. And so they really kind of started to become um, a, a security threat. But at the same time, the fact that so many people were converting to Islam and, and that you have, uh, it was giving opportunity to, you know, many more ideologically minded religious uh, leaders uh, to start dreaming of, of setting up some kind of caliphate or something like that. And the presence of the French was a problem for those types of people. So, so you have a set of interrelated conflicts that kind of emerged in that period which gave to the French the desire to just take control of everything <laughs> so, so that we, they can manage them uh, to the best of their interests. So that's how this colonial adventure of the French began in the 1850s, which means at a time when European powers were not really making plans to colonize Africa. I mean, they colonized all of the continents, but apart from uh, the French in Algeria, such plans did not really exist uh, in, uh, in, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. The scramble for Africa hadn't been initiated yet. No, yeah, because that was in the 1870s and 1880s. But, but it, it, people always found it strange. Why did the French actually start to colonize Senegal in the 1850s? And the, this, these are the very particular reasons why they did it. You write that the colonial regimes in the Western Sudan were more predatory and feudal than they were exploitative and capitalist. Lay, lay that out. What, what role did the Sahel play in the French Empire compared to, say, the Caribbean or, or Southeast Asia, or, or compared to other parts of Africa? I, I think the Sahel was a kind of, at least the heart of the Sahel, especially the place that are now Mali, Niger, and, and Burkina Faso, were a kind of disappointment uh, for the French because they, when they started the colonial project in earnest in the 1880s, they kind of thought that this was where the, the core of the empire would be. That's where the wealth of the empire would be because of the Niger River. You know, you have this big river, you have probably alluvial lands, you have high population densities, especially in uh, what is now Mali and Burkina Faso. But then, in fact, they realized that they didn't know the region very well. So it lacked a kind of rich soil that would create the kind of plantation economies that they were uh, dreaming about. And they did start uh, cotton plantations in, in Mali and, and Burkina, and peanut plantations continue in, in, in Senegal. But at the end of the day, the part of their empire that became really important economically is the Gulf of Guinea, especially uh, the Ivory Coast. So the, the Sahel uh, for the French ended up becoming a labor reservoir for the for the Ivory Coast because it was it was more populated at the beginning uh, simply because uh, Ivory Coast was in the kind of forest environment where you had more diseases you have uh, probably uh, more difficulties of, of setting up large population centers you have the tsetse fly uh, which is a, a kind of fly that gives you the sleeping disease and and prevents the the rearing of cattle and, and horses for instance but with modern medicine and, and the measures that they, the French took, 
Cote d'Ivoire became this, uh, Ivory Coast became this place where the economic future of, of France pres French presence in West Africa uh, became more important through the plantation of cocoa. And I think it's mostly cocoa and palm oil. And so the, the Sahel just became this labor reservoir for these regions. Actually, the Sahelians did not go just to Cote d'Ivoire. They also went to the Gold Coast, which is a British colony. Many of them went there as well. So the roles were distributed in that, in that way. After independence, you write, Sahelian states remained weak and dependent upon the metropole. How did the form that colonialism took in the Sahel shape the region's post-independence trajectory? And then, and then how did decolonization play out in the Sahel? What, what did regional leaders and movements seek to achieve amid and in the immediate wake of, of independence? The problem with independence is that uh, it also came with uh, the breaking up of uh, a very specific political and economic system. Because uh, the Sahelian colonies and their economies kind of made sense in the framework of French West Africa, which is a federation. So you have this, this federation of colonies and a kind of complementarity developed between the economies of the Gulf of Guinea and of the Sahel. So, so, and, and that's how, how it worked, uh, which means, for instance, that uh, when the Sahelian economies or finances, rather, were in trouble, you can have uh, fiscal transfers from, from the richer colonies to the poorer ones. Uh, you know, as in any system of federation. And the French did not put much effort to make the Sahel, economy, uh, the Sahel countries economically viable since they thought of them as uh, these uh, partners of the economies of the Gulf of Guinea. Moreover, one thing that strikes me uh, with how the French dealt with the Sahelian countries, especially Niger and Burkina Faso, it was called Upper Volta at that time, is a profound economic pessimism, which you actually kind of see even today when you look at how development and aid uh, agency and organisms kind of look at the prospect of those countries. So they have this very deep economic pessimism. There's not much that you can do in those places. The only thing that you can do is to make them peripheries of richer places, richer economies. The problem with uh, pessimistic thinking is that if you have it, it acts as a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy because then you do not invest to change things. Uh, they are too poor to be helped. I actually heard, heard that <laughs> about the Sahelian countries. Uh, therefore, the French do not really invest a lot to, uh, to develop those, those countries. That's why when they became uh, independent, their challenges were actually bigger than the ones of, faced by by Cote d'Ivoire, or even Senegal, which is Sahelian, but also coastal. You write that it was during the, quote, drama of drought and debt in the 1970s and 1980s, before the doldrums of neoliberal democracy since the 1990s, that the Western Sudan finally became today's Sahel. How did the defeat and frustration of the decolonization struggles, bigger ambitions, when, quote, NGOization neutered the third world, with its intimation of revolt, against an iniquitous international society into the meeker global south. How did that all end up creating what you call a regime of, quote, non-political government across the region? Sudan, uh, we actually talked about this at the beginning of our conversation. Sudan is more human geography. So I think 
behind the word Sudan, you have intimations of agency, of human agency, of culture, of civilization. Behind Sahel, you have just this vision of a, of, of a very austere, forbidding ecology and, and poverty. You know, the kind of connotations that go with the word Sahel are very different from the kind of connotations that go with the word Sudan. And, and in politics, uh, word and concept matters a lot. Uh, you know, the kind of emotions and, and visions that they that they evoke in people. And so the, the region started to be defined as the Sahel in the in the in the 1970s, which is also a way to consign it to a form of powerlessness and and, and lack of, of agency. Not just on the periphery, but the extreme periphery. Absolutely. The far periphery, yes. And, and that's where it was kind of pushed to uh, towards. And, and this was, uh, of course, a kind of failure of, of independence because independence was supposed to be the building of, of nation states with uh, sound economic bearings and the capacity to govern themselves thanks to that. Now, if you become the Sahel, by definition, you cannot actually govern yourself. You become a kind of, what is, what is the correct word? A, a, wor- a word. A word. Yeah, that's exactly the word I was, I was thinking about. Yeah, of the, what we now call the international community. And this is actually, to me, this is a real neocolonialism that is afflicting uh, the Sahel. <laughs> Today, and I guess we can, we will get to that, the way in which the Sahelians uh, tend to explain their predicament is to accuse the French uh, of being, you know, at, at the root of all their problems. And, and, and especially French neocolonialism, which they see as a kind of state neocolonial, neocolonialism. But in reality, the, the, the real neocolonialism is not a, is not a, state neocolonialism, it's financial neocolonialism, it's, uh, it's debt, and it's also aid, because even when uh, aid is a form of grant, it's still debt, because it comes with condition, it comes with you need to do this and this and that, so it comes with you being stripped of your agency and being, a, being obliged to follow the dictates of someone else. And I think this, the, basically the, the Sahel started to revert to to a new form of colonialism in, in that period. One thing that, that we forget about colonialism is that it came about through conquest, but two types of conquest. You had military conquest, which is the one that African, Sub-Saharan Africans were confronted with. The Sahel was conquered by the French, uh, you know, by French arms and guns. But you also had financial conquest, which is something that happened to most of North Africa. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was semi-colonized through uh, control taking uh, on the on the Ottoman bank by by the French and the British and the Germans. Uh, the same happens to Egypt. Even Russia was to some extent a, a semi colony of German capital and and French capital as well. And, and this is actually <laughs> a much more powerful and insidious form of colonization. And and this is this is the situation in which that I described as. Uh, non-governmentality. Well, actually, I, I took the word from, <laughs> from Gregory Mann. I want to get into a deeper analysis of, of the conflict, but first, we should talk about the region's economic structure, which is what, unsurprisingly, fundamentally determines the fault lines of the conflict, namely this divide between farmers and transhuman herders. What was the economic status quo prior to colonization, particularly with regard to settled versus nomadic populations? And then how did the region's economic organization, particularly in terms of nomadism, 
change throughout colonization and then since independence, leading us to today when the condition of nomadic people in the region so frequently provokes lethal conflict. There is a big issue on the Sahel that is approached by the West in a very alarmist way, in a, in a, a way that is so alarmist that you cannot even think of how to deal with it, at least, at least especially if you, if you take this Western perspective, it's demography. In fact, Africa is uh, going through what they call a demographic revolution in the sense that the, the difference between Africa and, and other continents, especially Europe and Asia, is that it has been by and large sparsely populated. You did have regions and areas where you had uh, dense concentrations of populations. Uh, you have population basins, uh, certainly along the Niger River, in the, in the Volta regions, uh, even in the Gulf of Guinea, you had some areas of dense uh, populations. But by and large, uh, Africa has been very, very sparsely populated. And that actually kind of explains why Africa did not develop the type of states that you see in Europe and in Asia, which rely on the exploitation of very dense populations. Uh, in fact, if you look at the maps, a map of Africa where you have states like those imperial states in the Sahel, Sudan that I mentioned, basically arose because the Niger region, the middle Niger region is a, a population basin. So population is really important, but it has always been a bit uh, small, <laughs> comparatively speaking. Actually, uh, when the French and even the British, it's the same, came in the region, that's the main problem that they saw was low populations. So you do not have enough labor force and you do not have enough consumers. So they actually have natalist policies to boost the population. They also had plans, the French, to take population from the Volta regions, which are really very, very densely populated, to the middle uh, Niger region, where, which they wanted to uh, make more profitable for commercial exploitation. Uh, so that's a kind of labor transfer. So population was really uh, a problem uh, from the point of view of the European, but in the reverse form from today, they saw it as too little population. And that was true at the time. But then population started to grow. And in fact, what is happening in Africa today is something that is like a catching up to where the rest of the world was before Africa. But this is seen as a problem <laughs> by many outside of Africa. But it is very natural. It's, it's, it's just Africa is becoming more like other places. But this comes, of course, with problems if you do not, if you do not have plans on how to manage this, this population growth. If, if you see it just as something scary, you, do not, you cannot even manage it, economically speaking. So I, I did this very long preface because, in my opinion, that is what is really kind of driving the political economy problems in, in that region. Before uh, the colonial era, you did not really have big problems between herders and, and, and and, and farmers, because the population were so small, it was much more easier to, to manage the resources and to share them. And you do have, even now, institutions, traditional institutions that were set up in that period to create collaboration rather than conflict between herders and farmers. Uh, for instance, farmers wanted to have animals. This is not our job. We do not know how to do it. So we give our animals to herders. 
herders take care of it, and, and then we can draw on them if you want. And also we can sell grain uh, to herders because they don't cultivate. So the system was based on collaboration, and you did have institutions of collaboration in that older period. However, with the population growth, <laughs> collaboration started to be uh, you know, kind of replaced by conflict, especially because the main population growth was coming from the farming populations, uh, which kind of makes sense because since in the Sahel you did not develop uh, labor-saving mechanisms and processes in order to kind of produce agricultural products, the main way in which the land is exploited is through labor-intensive work. And the best way to have uh, laborers is to have children. <laughs> so, so and, and there are many other reasons. I actually wrote a study on, on, on these political economy uh, reasons behind this big population growth in, in, in the Sahel, which is mainly farming population growth, not herding population growth, which means that herders start to get cornered because farmers then kind of expand. Uh, since also the kind of agriculture that they pro produ uh, practice is not extensive agriculture, uh, intensive agriculture, it's extensive agriculture. So they, they, they don't have access to much in terms of, of uh, fertilizers and, and, and those kind of stuff. And, and therefore, uh, you know, kind of the, the way to increase production is to increase land cultivated. And that would impinge on the livelihood of the herders who need the land uh, for grazing. And, and so that's basically that's what, where the conflict started. And the old institutions could not deal with, the, with that. You write that three key factors laid the groundwork for the war that first took off in Mali. Quote, The incendiary combination of Tuareg unrest, militarized conflict in the tri-border region, and violent jihadism exported from the Algerian civil war. Let's start with the unrest among the Tuareg. Uh, a Tuareg rebellion beginning in 1990 in northern Mali, you write, was really a complex conflict involving the Malian state, three different strata of Tuareg society, and Fulani herders. You write that, quote, What the Western media were fond of imagining as a revolt of freedom-loving, oppressed desert warriors, brave yet downtrodden, against brutal African states was— on the ground, a civil war over age-old social contradictions and livelihood crises, in which the state was often a marginal player. How did these social contradictions and livelihood crises explode when they did in the way that they did? And then why and how did the Western press, particularly in France, romanticize the Tuareg? And what did that romanticization obscure? The, a, a big thing that it obscured is the failure of the Sahel countries of becoming nation states, you know, of creating, creating this kind of uh, standardization of conduct and, and expectations that is most of the time, uh, the, actually not most of the time, all of the time, an outcome of economic and social revolution that kind of changes completely. We, we define that kind of revolution or transformation as development, basically. So where the kind of Old regime economies make way for modernity, uh, industrial prosperity, and, and those kind of, kind of things. This did not happen in the Sahel, but at the same time, you have states that draw their legitimacy from the idea that they are ruling nations, nations similar to the ones that exist in developed economies. So 
the fact that those nations are so different from what you see in places like France, for instance, uh, means that many of the old regime conditions still exist today in the Sahel. So, for instance, this organization of Sahel or of Tuareg society between noble uh, citizens and slaves uh, is still extant today. Of course, it has been changed by the conditions of modernity, the way in which they kind of worked on the Sahel societies, but actually not that much because the economic the economic basis are still very similar from what they were before. And uh, I think there is something particular to the Tuareg uh, because they are nomads, and that's true for the Fulani as well. The main mechanism of through which the states are kind of trying to, to standardize uh, populations into becoming nations is, is school, school, formal school education. And formal school education is really hard to, <laughs> to promote amongst nomadic societies. So in, in, in that sense, and not out of discrimination, but just because of the way in which the economies operate, because of the moment of history in which we are, nomadic groups tend to be marginalized relative to this project of, of creating uh, new nation states. A an additional thing about the Tuareg is that their society has been hierarchized in a way that you, must all, you may almost describe as racial because the Tuaregs are Berber, so they're kind of light-skinned. Uh, they uh, sometimes identify even as white, <laughs> in a way, uh, whereas all of their slaves are blacks. And then you have a gradation in the middle the middle categories are both, you know, white uh, and black. The, the term that is used in the Sahel is not white, it's red. <laughs> so the Tuareg are seen as being red, the, the nobles, the, the noble Tuareg. So this came with two problems. So this problem of a society that has not changed very much, has not been standardized into, you know, kind of a more egalitarian part of nation state. And... There is a problem with racism because since all slaves are seen as, as black, therefore there is a, a kind of ideological equation between blackness and slavery uh, in, in Tuareg society. And this is very important in understanding uh, Tuareg rebellions because that's why I insist that they are actually the rebellion of a class of Tuareg society, not not a rebellion of Tuareg ethnicity. It's mostly the noble classes, the aristocratic classes, because they resent the notion that they would be, they would be part of a state that would be governed by people who they see as their slaves, or at least the groups from which they took their slaves. And the other thing is they feel that integration into nation states like Niger and Mali uh, means that the culture in which they have this privileged position will dissolve. So you even have uh, a term that uh, if you do not know that history, you do not understand it, that is used by uh, Tuareg rebels, a cultural genocide. They speak of cultural genocide. And because in the West, people are so enamored <laughs> With, with Tuareg culture, the music, the, the pageantry, 
the impression that they have in this beautiful culture is going to be destroyed. But when the nobles speak of cultural genocide, what they're seeing is that this culture in which, uh, because when we do all this pageantry, we drink tea, we do music, someone else is doing the work. <laughs> so, and, and that someone is all the, uh, the subaltern and, and the slaves. So that's what they're seeing. Okay, we are going to lose our, our uh, authority on all those other groups, and therefore this beautiful culture that we are enjoying will disappear. So it's, it's a cultural genocide. It's, it's like the, the French aristocrats not being able to listen to chamber music in their hotel particulier, basically because of evolution. So, so, or in the U.S., like Gone with the Wind. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. the antebellum, the antebellum way of life. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is actually very true. Um, and I I have since comparisons being made uh, of that by some people. These are the things that are driving those rebellions, and therefore, you do have groups within the Tuareg society who are actually. I, I align with the state because the state still wants to integrate everyone into this idea of the nation. And then you have the conflict on basically land. So the conflict can be between herder and, and farmers, but it can be also be between herders of different groups. So for instance, Fulani herders competing with Tuareg herders. So that, that's, that way you have a kind of very, a, you kind of conjuries of conflict. <laughs> you have the conflict between herders and farmers, you have conflict between herders and herders, and then you have the conflict between those privileged social classes in the state. And all of those things are contaminating each other's. And, and so, and it becomes very hard to find the kind of right institutions that would govern all of this. You know, so the institutions that existed in the past, like the traditional chieftaincies, the so-called traditional chieftaincies are being used to the max by the state to, to govern all those conflicts, but they're not sufficient. They're not enough. So there's a kind of institutional failure here. Let's turn to the second factor. How, how in the 1990s did the, this conflict ultimately lead to this militarization of the entire tri-border region across Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso? And what were the consequences of that militarization? I think that there is probably an element of information that I'm missing here, but one, one thing is certain that the region was flooded with small, small arms <laughs> in that period. Some of the arms were coming from, from the Tuareg rebels. Actually, some of them were getting them from Libya through any number of channels, including uh, support that was given to them at that time by Gaddafi, who had this kind of uh, trans-Saharan dream of becoming this master of the Sahara. So he did actually foment trouble uh, by, by supporting Tuareg rebels and giving them arms. But some of the arms was, was also coming from the armies of Niger and Mali because they were giving them to communities who opposed the rebels. And then more generally, this 1990s period was really a time when these small arms became a major problem in the entire region of West Africa, probably because of the conflicts in Liberia, in Sierra Leone, and, and other places. And so that intensified the, the, the conflict in the sense that you have more casualties. Before, in the 1980s, when people fought, it was with, with sticks and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that, not lethal weapons with ammunition and all that kind of... So it really kind of changed the nature of the conflict in that time period. 
And then another key factor was the 1990s Algerian civil war, which we, we've touched on a bit, but not really got it into. It, it pit the post-revolutionary military government against Islamist insurgents. And the Islamist insurgents were eventually crushed by the government after a very bloody war. What what was being contested? What was at stake in that war? And why why did the military government's victory at decades end prove so enormously consequential for northern Mali? Well, it was really uh, an Algerian story. So if we go through the history, it began with uh, an attempt of democratization of in Algeria in uh, in a time of crisis because Algeria was also in the 1980s going through the throes of neoliberal austerity and policies. And, and so a government in Algeria became unsure how to how to control the population and and I think they, they proposed this transition to democracy as a way to retain control and, and gain legitimacy through political means and not as before uh, through economic means, because now the economy was in crisis in the 1980s in Algeria. And they were dealing with this like ossification of post-revolutionary government. Absolutely. So, so that was an idea that they had. But the problem is it came really at a time when uh, Islamism was this very attractive uh, ideology across the Muslim world. I remember even in Niger, there was a party actually that was created in Niger at the time that wanted to be an Islamist party. And it was forbidden just because in the constitution you cannot have a, a, a political party based on religion. But there was a, Islamism was really, really fashionable at that time. And, and in Algeria, of course, and so this uh, party, the Islamic Salvation Front, yeah, wanted to compete in, in elections and then change and Islamize uh, Algerian government. And for the military, who have always been the power behind the scenes, uh, this was intolerable. So, so they, they, when they saw that the Islamists were actually winning the elections, they stopped the they stopped the election, the electoral process, and they jailed the, the main leaders, the main political leaders of the Islamist party. And, well, this radicalized their basis, and, and you had all those kind of military, militant, militarized groups that then cropped up uh, and fight for power now with, with guns and, yeah, even a strategy of terror. So that, and that became a full-blown uh, civil war. Uh, actually, the Islamists were, yeah, they were kind of vanquished and defeated, uh, by the military after a decade of very, very dirty and absolutely horrible and atrocious war. I, I, in fact, what happened in Algeria in that period, <laughs> to some extent, is, is worse than what we're seeing today in the Sahel. But I'm not even sure the, the military actually managed to crush the, jihad, the, the, the Islamists. Probably they also made some deal, deals and compromises with, with many of them. Uh, for instance, uh, one of them, Abdel Kader Brukdel, Abdel Malik Brukdel, I, I think is his name, who was killed by the French at the border between Algeria and Mali um, a few, I think two years ago, was gallivanting in northern Algeria uh, before, you know, driving to, to the south where he, he met his end. And you can be certain that Algerian civil services knew about that. So anyway, still, I mean, the balance was was against the Islamists, so they kind of fled south and and they tried to settle in Mauritania, across the southern Sahara, actually, in Mauritania, Mali, Niger, and Chad. And in the end, they, Mali, northern Mali became the most hospitable place for them because in Chad you had rebel groups, so you had, you know, you have violence there going on and, and it was hard to find a steady allies. 
Niger was not hospitable because the, the northern desert in Niger hold uh, uranium and coal, and the French were very present, and the Nigerian state was very present because of those resources. Whereas northern Mali, well, yeah, it was vacant, vast, and also it had the longest um, or the second longest border with Algeria. So that's where they settled. And in fact, at the beginning, their idea was not to attack Mali at all. They didn't care about Mali. The idea was to still become, in, to still remain a nuisance to, to Algeria and, and to still maintain a stake in Algerian politics, uh, expecting the wind to turn their way one, one, one way or another. And they would have stayed in that position uh, without the Tuareg rebellion post-Qaddafi of 2011. Yeah, well, that's the spark that then ignites yeah. All of that kindling, the U.S.-backed Franco-British NATO intervention in Libya in 2011, which, of course, led to Gaddafi's ouster and and killing. The intervention was very much framed in the language of human rights and the duty to protect civilians. Pen- I think really penance of a sort for what the West didn't do in Rwanda. That was the framing in the U.S. What what was actually going on with the Libyan intervention and and then what were the consequences of it for the Sahel? It's very strange. <laughs> it's very strange because I, I, I don't think it's very rational. Well, I don't really buy the justification we want to avoid a genocide because Gaddafi was not going to commit a genocide. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, he, there would have been a war between the government and, and insurgents in Libya and many insurgents would have died and also many people in the, in the government camp would have died. So that would have been a civil war. And, and basically, uh, France, the U.S., and Britain decided to take side on a civil war, and they decided to take side against Gaddafi. And to me, at least if you calculate things a bit coldly, that was a bit of a baffling decision because Gaddafi had become uh, a mainstay of kind of order that was favorable to the West <laughs> in the region at that time, at least on three scores. Uh, migration, he really controlled it. Salafism, he was uh, pro-Sufi. He, he was the only ruler with financial means who supported uh, Sufi groups in the Sahel and therefore made them more able to oppose a Salafi group and therefore Islamism. And the, the third is he has changed mind about uh, Tuareg rebellions and he, was, he had become more like a factor of peace brokering than a factor of creating more strife in the region. That's why, for instance, he had all those Tuareg leaders of Mali and Niger in Tripoli, gave him plum jobs, and so that they can you know, stay out, out of the hairs of the Nigerian and, and Malian government. And he also began to invest a lot in those, in those two countries, especially in Mali, because Niger has always been distrustful of, of Gaddafi, <laughs> being, having a border with, with Libya. But Mali really kind of uh, welcomed a lot of Libyan, Libyan investment. So the, the decision to, I was actually in Oxford when that thing happened. And I remember that the institution at which I was staying asked two of us, one person from Burkina and me to write notes on, on what was happening. And, and I, I wrote that I do, did not understand why the West was attacking Gaddafi because they are going to have lots of problems. It's going to give more strength to Islamist groups. Uh, you will have an immigration crisis. And 
security-wise, lots of uncertainty will arise from the fall of Gaddafi. Whereas the guy from Burkina Faso wrote something about, well, this is the Arab Spring, it's nice, and we hope it will arrive in our country as well. And the note that they preferred was the one from, <laughs> from, from that other person. And I could see why, because, because this was a nicer story and, and, and this is what people in the West wanted to believe in and Gaddafi is a bad guy. So that they were not realistic about it, about it at all. How did all of these ingredients we've discussed, the Tuareg Rebellion of the 1990s, or really the Tuareg arist- aristocratic rebellion that began in the 1990s, the militarization, the Algerian civil war sending Salafists into northern Mali, and the 2011 intervention overthrowing Qaddafi, how did that all come together to create this new jihadist insurgency comprised of Tuaregs, Fulanis, and Algerian Salafists that, that in 2012 swept southward and seized Gao and Timbuktu? Yeah, there was, there was a perfect storm element. When I, li- I listen to you list- listing all those elements, I can see that there is really a kind of perfect storm element to all of this. It's just uh, the perfect timing for, for a disaster to happen. And then you have uh, contingent factors like the case of Iyad Agali, who is this Tuareg leader of the jihadists in northern Mali. And before that, he was actually a rebel leader in the 1990s. Um, then now he turned into a jihadist. And you know, this guy in the 2000s, late mid-2000s, the president of Mali uh, wanted to kind of uh, get him out of his hair and he appointed him uh, in Jeddah, consulate there, the Mali consulate in Jeddah. And there, Yad Ghali made contact with Al-Qaeda. And Saudi actually kind of found out about it and expelled him. And expelled him, I think, in 2010 or even in 2011, just in time for him to come and find this, you know, <laughs> this explosion happening. So he became the leader of the, of the Tuareg jihadists in, the, in that in that conglomerate of, of rebels and jihadists that was forming to attack the Malian state. And he established the linkage with Al-Qaeda. So that's why, for instance, that the section of the, because you have now two big jihadist groups, and, and the one that is being led by Yad Ghali is the one that is still affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's just a coincidence of course, uh, it's not it's not really a coincidence because we had so many problems brewing that were not being solved or taken care of carefully. There were attempts, and there were people who uh, were trying to do something. Like there was a Nigerian prime minister who had managed to broker some kind of entente between uh, Fulani and 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 some Tuareg groups, and and more of those things should have been done that were not in that period. Yeah, so it's just perfect storm, I guess. And and what are the roles, respectively, of the Tuaregs, Fulanis, and Algerian Salafists in the insurgency? The Algerian Salafists were not really they were not really interested in in Mali, but they had become a Malian power because they have stayed there for so long. They came in the early two thousands and so ten years. So in, in a way, they have kind of created relationships with, with populations there. They, they started to spread their message. And they drew in Malians uh, in their kind of 
groups. So uh, hence, especially Tuareg, even some Arabs, the Arabs were not really interested in becoming jihadists, but the Arabs were the ones who were running the drug, we didn't speak of that, the drug trafficking networks. And, and they wanted to run their operation without much trouble. And if the, those jihadists were the power that be in that section of Mali that was linking Morocco to Mali, because some of the drug was coming from Morocco, then they also kind of uh, had an intent with, with the jihadists. So, so we have a set of uh, a situation that developed a kind of regime of northern Mali, dominated by the jihadists, who, who the Algerian and, and Moroccan and Tunisian jihadists, because they were coming from other places in the Maghreb as well, uh, that developed in the region. And but they were Malians, uh, especially Tuareg Malian, in in that uh, conglomeration of of jihadists. And and this guy Yadagali, uh, when he took the lead of the Tuareg uh, segment of of the jihadist groups, he redirected their attention towards Mali instead of Algeria. And in fact, we have evidence of the conversations that were happening in, in the group. And, and Algerians were trying to limit his ambition. Okay, now we, we have, especially towards 2012, when they occupied Timbuktu. So now we have taken over this part of Mali. Let's stick to it. Let's not try to do more than this. Uh, maybe we can be accepted. Uh, but Yadagali didn't want to. And other things were happening. You mentioned the Fulani. Well, you have actually two Fulani groups that are important here. One group was in, at the border between Niger and Mali. And another group was in the center of Mali, in the region that is called Masina. And uh, this region of Masina was actually the territory of one of those jihadist states that we mentioned at the beginning uh, of our conversation that existed in the 19th century. So they already have this, this uh, tradition of, of religious Islamic militancy. And a leader from Masina had joined the, the jihadist groups. His name is Hamadun Kufa. He had joined the jihadist groups. But he did not necessarily draw people from Masina to join the jihadists. The problem, the, the, what, the thing that happened was actually the Fulani from Niger who joined the jihadist group for a very specific reason. The states made mistakes. By the states, I mean France and Niger especially. Uh, in order to, to fight the jihadists, the Islamist terrorists, because that was the only concern of the French, the French allied with uh, Tuareg groups uh, to help them do that. You know, they, they have a very small force on the ground. They do not know the country. They do not speak the language, so they need a local allies, so they partner with the Tuareg, especially since they already have this kind of partiality with the Tuareg. And Niger, uh, from the beginning, has banked on alliance with the West to confront this menace. So Niger also did the same. The problem when they did this was that the, the groups with, with whom they partnered also had their own agenda, and their agenda was very much anti-Fulani. So the Fulani felt threatened, and so they joined the jihadists because yeah 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 <laughs> so there was this big mistake that was made at the outset and the niger fulani were actually the ones who gave the first critical mass to the jihadist groups in the region because they really went there en masse let's get into the french military intervention which 
has taken place in two phases, starting with Operation Serval in 2013, which did successfully stop the jihadist advance into central Mali. But in 2014, quote, when the jihadists dispersed and reorganized after Serval, the expedition mutated into a much larger intervention codenamed Operation Barkhan. What have the contours of these military operations been as they've played out across Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Chad? And we haven't even talked about Chad. And specifically, how was it that Operation Serval mutated into Barkhan? Well, it, it was presented as an adjustment to the menace. Okay, Serval was really a classic military intervention when you have the enemies in face in the face of you. You know them. You uh, you are you're almost like a regular war uh, with a regular army. Uh, whereas now that the menace has changed with this uh, dispersal of the of the jihadists and, and, and the fact that it has turned into a kind of insurgency rather than a war. So how do you deal with that? Uh, so Barkhane was a response to that change. I think personally that it's an outcome of the hubris of the French army. I think they were so glad they managed to end the problem with Serval in the way they did that they thought that they had a capacity to deal with the larger issue by creating this new operation, that was really, really not well adapted to the to the situation, in my analysis. But it is it is a military response, uh, in part because France's Africa policy is developed between the Elysee Palace and the army, so other French state organizations are not very much involved in that. And so the military kind of set some of their preferences. Uh, and the preference here was, okay, we, we are going to deal with this in this specific way. We are going to organize our former colonies uh, into this organization called the G5 Sahel, which includes Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Chad. The armies of those three or, or those five states will be supervised by us, organized so that they can actually uh, fight themselves, the, the insurgents. But in the meantime, to give them the time to organize, we are going to to be on the ground and, and, and do uh, whatever we can to limit and cripple the jihadists. In, in later time, in the later time, the, the thing that we were doing basically was to kill the, the leaders, to identify and, ki- and kill the leaders. So that was the plan. The plan was, okay, we are the leaders. We are going to organize them. It's very colonial in a way. <laughs> And since they're not ready, we are going to give them the time to, to, to get ready. And what role are American and other forces, outside forces, playing in the conflict? Yeah, American, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Because uh, at the beginning, they, they did play a very critical role of support to the French. Uh, because uh, I remember at the time, the French did not even have drones, surveillance drones. So they, they, they had to ask the Americans to to supply that. But mostly uh, the Americans, they kind of wanted to do their own thing, similar to the French, train the military, give them the capacity to to do the fighting themselves and and even train them on the ground. But after this um, incident, I forgot the year, but there was an incident in a place in Niger called Tongo Tongo where some American soldiers were killed. Uh, The U.S. stopped doing that. Uh, they, They stopped being on the ground 
And now they... Because it was the first time most Americans realized there were American troops there in the <laughs> yes. first place. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was very shocking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and, and now what they're doing was, I think they concentrate mostly in the northern part of Niger, so the Sahara, and especially Libya. So they have a huge base uh, in a small town in the remote northeastern section of Niger. I think a place that is almost like 1,500 kilometers away from the capital. Uh, there is no one there, but they have this huge sprawling base. And, and the idea is to, to deal with what is happening in Libya and, and in the Sahara in, in general. Uh, I don't know to what extent they collaborate with the French. I would say not very much. But they are, well, they have the same objective. So there is some LM, some <laughs> uh, amount of collaboration going on between them. For many in the West, you write that the region, quote, epitomizes the trifecta of alien demographic vitality, Islamic fanaticism, and pauper migration that is the new specter haunting the West. And as we discussed near the top of the interview, that the Sahel's population growth is often referred to with a, quote, ticking time bomb metaphor. And so... And so for Europe, the, the Sahel represents not just the security threat from armed Islamist militants, but also a threat from ordinary people whose migration toward Europe just a half century after the end of formal colonialism is portrayed as an invasion, as a, as a subaltern colonization of the metropole. What has this massive extension of EU border security into Africa that we've seen in recent years looked like in the Sahel? And... How has that, this, this rendering, Europe's rendering of the region into a borderland to be secured, how has that shaped the armed conflict and French intervention? The border management issue is mostly, it's more European than French. It's, it's, more, it's where Europe started to see its interest in the Sahel because, let's be honest, there are many conflicts in, the, in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa, that is not of any interest to, <laughs> to the Europeans, so, but they are really laser focused on what is happening in, in the Sahel. And, and uh, the beginning of the interest is really migration. Uh, you know, they revived the International Organization for Migration, IOM. That's European money that actually revived that organization that was a bit moribund. And uh, they created uh, a number of organizations, funding systems and mechanisms to incite countries in West Africa uh, to better manage their border, which means just kind of prevent uh, migration outflows towards Europe. And these aren't just sending countries for migrants. This is also transit countries. Yeah, like Niger, for instance. Migrants from farther south. Niger isn't going. Nigerian migrants are not going in droves to Europe. This is one of the countries that have the least migration population towards Europe, but it is a huge transit country. And in fact, Niger became the first border of the EU in West Africa, which didn't stop the, the migration. So now they have a second border in Libya, which seems, <laughs> which is a bit more violent than the one they, that exists in, in Niger. Yeah, the, um, the current post-Qaddafi leaders enslave migrants there. Yeah, they do that because already there was a xenophobia against sub-Saharan Africa that existed when Gaddafi was the ruler, but because Gaddafi was actually uh, building this pan-African policy and, and calling people from sub-Saharan Africa to come and work in Libya, uh, people in Libya could not express that. But now uh, he's not, Gaddafi is no longer there. So, so yeah, it, it has kind of 
taking those very dark shapes. And then you have countries where, you know, people actually do live towards Europe, and, and that's, that's Mali. Among the Sahelian countries, it's Mali and Senegal especially. And in Mali, the attempt of the EU to impose its kind of policy choices uh, failed lamentably because uh, the migrants in Mali have a very powerful lobby. They even have a ministry, so, so they really kind of torpedoed this, uh, the EU efforts. That's what ended up impelling the EU to focus on Libya. It's a failure in the Sahel. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Inside the Second Wave of Feminism, Boston Female Liberation 1968-1972, an account by participants by Nancy Rosenstock. In this landmark account of a key radical feminist organization, activist members of Boston Female Liberation provide an inside look at the group's history, strategy, and legacy. As Sophie Lewis puts it, Often the intimately intertwined histories of socialism, anarchism, and gay and women's liberation in America are willfully obscured. Often, the shortcomings and defeats of lesbian separatist organizing are memorialized to the exclusion of the imaginatively rich, experientially complex, frequently surprising archives of women-centered struggle we need and deserve to hear about. These are some of the reasons why Nancy Rosenstock's account of the militant collective thought and action of trans-inclusive Boston females 50 years ago is an important resource for anyone invested in today's movements for gender liberation and reproductive justice. Inside the Second Wave of Feminism by Nancy Rosenstock, out now from Haymarket Books and available on haymarketbooks.org where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. I want to get into the history of French power in Africa since decolonization, just sort of stepping back for a moment, because this strange mixture of the British Commonwealth and in the United States Monroe Doctrine in Latin America, you write, quote, after the Suez Crisis, Britain offloaded its imperial policy to the U.S. and turned into America's biddable satellite. France refused this fate and salvaged some of its own autonomy by corralling its former sub-Saharan colonies into a neocolonial construct now often decried with the pejorative France-Afrique. This was a glacis, a zone of influence in which a status quo advantageous to the imperial patron was forcibly imposed on par with the one America foisted on Latin America and the USSR in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. This is such a distinct history in terms of post-colonial history. How, how did the French lose their empire only to keep it? What, what did that mean for Fifth Republic France, both domestically and also in terms of its place within the world system? What interests, ideological, economic, geopolitical, domestic, did, did France-Afrique serve? The... The origin is really policy from Charles de Gaulle because he was the one who wanted to maintain uh, France's strategic autonomy in the world. He didn't want France to be too subservient to the U.S., uh, obviously not subservient at all to the USSR. So the, the only way to, to maintain relevance is to have a big, big footprint in the world. 
And the place where that was much easier to do uh, is in Africa, especially sub-Saharan Africa, because France had other colonies, uh, North Africa, Indochina. Well, Indochina, we know, we know how that went. Uh, but but so, so I, I think maybe a main response to your question is, well, they did it in sub-Saharan Africa because they could, because that's where the weakest link in their imperial system was, so they could continue to do it especially because also at independence, many of those states in sub-Saharan Africa were very poor, were fledgling, needed help and assistance. And and France seems to be the most natural provider of that due to the the shared language and and, and the fact that they're basically copying French institutions. So there was this kind of need that they had of France. And that need was also kind of promoted by the French because there were some leaders who uh, were actually willing to go in a very revolutionary direction. Okay, yes, we were former French colonies, but we can invent something else. People like Shibo Bakari in Niger or Sekouture in Guinea, for instance. And the French usually got rid of those, uh, especially Shibo Bakari, not Sekouture. Sekouture, they punished him by just severing all linkages with, with Guinea. But in other places, they promoted uh, the leaders who were you know, kind of willing to to accept that, that that type of tutelage that, you know, countries, uh, newly born countries needed to, in terms of capital, in terms of training of staff, uh, any number of things that are very necessary if you want to build up your state, uh, France was ready to provide that. But there was a quid pro quo. We give you this, but you give us this. Especially, for instance, in terms of securing its, uh, its energy independence, uh, France built a series of compacts with uranium-producing countries like Gabon and, and Niger, for instance. And the way the French present this is that that gives us independence. Well, they're in fact dependent on Gabon and Niger, but that, is, <laughs> but that, that is not really a dependence since those, those uh, countries are so subordinate to French uh, wishes, you know. So, so that's, that's how, how, how they did it. You write, quote, since conceding its African colonies' independence in 1960, France has intervened militarily on average once every 15 months for the past 16 years. And you continue, that is not counting secret and covert operations, sometimes using mercenary force or colluding with an axis of deplorables, Pretoria, Abidjan, Rabat. What purposes did France Afrique's military dimension serve? And how and how is that how is that all received in the region? What and how did it shape states post-independence trajectories and just the entire post-independence regional system? The, it created the the French call it stability. That okay, we are intervening because uh, we want to ensure stability. What it really did ensure is status quo. Status quo, you can call it stability. So I think the, the main outcome of this is to impose in position of authorities, especially in presidential palaces, yes-men of France. So that was what they call stability and, and what they call status quo. But it also has a, a kind of traumatic uh, impact on, uh, on people in, in, the, in the countries because they now develop this belief that uh, France is all-powerful and and also uh, all-powerful in a diabolical way, uh, which is not true. Um, actually, <laughs> one thing that, one story that I, I like to tell to people in, in Niger, for instance, 
is there, that the fact that their belief that the coup d'etat of 1974, which is a major event in Nigerian history when the first independence government was toppled by the military, and everyone in Niger is persuaded that this was done by the French because at that time the government was negotiating the price of uranium. But a historian, a Dutch historian, found out recently that no, actually the coup d'etat was made despite the French and actually the <laughs> plotters, they, they selected even the time, Easter Monday, this is a French <laughs> holiday, the President Pompidou died uh, and France did not have a president yet. It had only a president by interim president. And the, they, they made the coup by hiding from the French uh, military advisor that who were planted in, in the Nigerian military. And, and they did some false maneuvers to just kind of, uh, you know, uh, delude them when preparing the coup. And when they were executing the coup, they set up eight, eight roadblocks between the presidency and the French embassy. And they, and they cut the, the line, the telephone line between the French embassy and, and the presidency. And then they made it their coup. So it was clearly not controlled by the French. But it is very difficult to make people in Niger admit that because the people are so persuaded that anything that happens in those countries, France must be, uh, you know, the power, the, the power behind the scenes that is uh, doing everything. It is a problem because, yes, France does, does have a neocolonial policy, actually one that is declining now and that is much less important uh, than it used to be. But it is not behind everything. And if you believe that, then you, your calculations are, are false. You write right now that that very sentiment has led to all this popular anti-French sentiment across the re region, quote, the first anti-French sovereigntist movement in the region. You write, quote, France has proved incapable of vanquishing the jihadists, despite having the resources of a great Western army. That impotence looks suspicious and has bred theories, bolstered by past French mischief, real or imagined, that the former colonizer may actually be using the militants to destabilize the Sahel and take control of the untold riches in the region's grounds. How did France's battlefield failures get metabolized as mass anti-French politics in the region of politics, which you argue has some reactionary and conspiratorial aspects? What, what is it that makes, as you argue, this anti-French sovereignism something new? And to what degree does it draw on any sort of ideological currents from the decolonization era? Actually, uh, French failure, this is a perception, of course, because, as you remember, the intention of France was never to end the jihadism. They knew that they did not have the means to do it. You do not end this with 5,000 or 4,000 military person in a, in a region so vast as the Central Sahara. So that was not the, that was not the objective. But that, that was what it was believed to be. Okay, your objective was to end this. You failed to do it. Uh, therefore, this is, this is not normal, something... Something else must be going on, especially also because France did behave in, in a very imprudent way at the beginning. Uh, remember this alliance with the Tuareg in Mali? It was also with the Tuareg rebels. For the Malians, the entire problem of the country began with those rebels. And now the French were actually siding with them. And in Mali and in Niger, there has always been this strong suspicion that France wants to break up 
their countries in order to give the Central Sahara to some Tuareg state uh, that would then give it access to the riches that they think are hidden in the, in the Sahara, or even the riches like uranium. If, if this Tuareg state takes control of the uranium mines, then you know, it becomes more accessible to France, at least in the, in the discourse. Uh, it's, it's not actually a very uh, rational or well-informed point of view, but, but that's, that's how people see it. And so France did make some, some mistakes. And I think those mistakes were also not real mistakes because, in a sense, French decision-makers really did believe that more autonomy should be given to what, what they call the Tuareg. So they inserted themselves in the heart of the political process in Mali, and Malians really saw that as a major violation of who they are, that this outside power can come and tell us how we should even apportion our territory. These uh, uh, Algiers agreements uh, that were kind of pushed by the international community, but you know, mainly by the French and Algerians, this is, this is what some Malians, especially Malians in the north, like the Songhai, for instance, they see as a, as a major betrayal of the French. So there are certain specific things that the French did that uh, turned the, the people against them. Because remember, when, when the French stopped uh, the jihadists with Serval, they were widely popular in Mali. President Hollande uh, went to Timbuktu and he was basically mobbed by gleeful and joyful Malians. And he was so uh, emotional about it that about it, that he made a speech and said that this was the most important moment in his entire political career. So they were really, really popular at that point, but then they went and, and they made those mistakes with Barkhane, and from, from that point, people started to turn against them. But I think the broader thing that is happening here is that, because you see it mostly in the Sahel, you do have anti-French and even anti-Western uh, discourse uh, across Africa, not just in the Sahel. I think because this is part of how Pan-African identity builds itself up. You have Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre uh, has this pun in French, on, on, on suppose en s'opposant. <laughs> you set yourself up by, by setting yourself against, uh, against someone. So, so you have to define yourself against an enemy. And, and the enemy of Pan-Africans is the West because of the history of slave trade and, and colonialism, etc., etc., so and and that that existed in the Sahel as well, but Pan Africanism is an intellectual movement, so it kind of stayed confined within uh, some intellectual circles. It wasn't like the general opinion. The thing that is happening in the Sahel and in many French-speaking countries, actually not just in the Sahel, but I think in the Sahel, it's, it's it is more visible. Is that now this thing is becoming popular. It's not just intellectual. And it is becoming popular for two reasons. I think one reason is that you have to explain failure. That's a conclusion that they have reached through a long chain of reflections that I would not give you because it will take time. But you have to explain failure. And there is a sense of failure in all those countries. Why haven't we been able to develop, to become prosperous, etc., etc.? Someone has to be responsible for that. So, so this sense of failure would ascribe the blame to the French because, well, they are the ones who are very present in the region. They did have a neo-colonial policy, and this neo-colonial policy 
uh, is still there in, in the form of a habitus, more so than in the form of a very well thought out policy as it was before. And so with also the Pan-African vision of the world, we can see ourselves as being still in the process of fighting a national liberation war. And in a national liberation war, the enemy is the colonizer. The enemy is France. So you have this very strange discourse now in the Sahel where the obvious enemy, the enemy who is really killing Sahelian soldiers and and civilian populations are the jihadists. But people never talk about the jihadists. They don't matter. In popular speech and especially in intellectual speech, the enemy is France. And to make sense of this, France is accused of using the jihadists to attack uh, the Sahelian countries because that's the enemy that we need. It's exactly as the French also need this Islamist terrorist as the enemy in their discourse. In this anti-colonial national liberation discourse, the enemy must be France. So that's, that's one thing. And the other reason why it became popular is just the effect of, of social networks. <laughs> I mean, uh, before this discourse was kind of a bit confined amongst people who read books and, and newspapers and, and things like that. Now with, with Facebook and especially WhatsApp, WhatsApp is the major culprit here. It, it's spread like wildfire because, uh, you know, you can just uh, make videos and, and, or, or vocal speeches and send it anonymously across, you know, large, amounts of pe- large numbers of people. And those videos and speeches, they are mostly emotional. They don't speak to your rationality. So they mobilize people on the, on the basis of anger and resentment. And, and, so, and they simplify also the discourse because the, the intellectual pan-Africanism was a bit complex. Uh, they will give dates, events, uh, they will explain processes, they will ex- use theories. And in the social network, you know that all this is just <laughs> out of the window. You write, quote, such sentiments and the pressures they create in the political field have already pushed Mali into the arms of Russia, which Malians, at least those in the South, see as the right kind of foil for the country that they consider their only true enemy, France. The same is now true in Burkina Faso, the, the latest country where the Kremlin-tied mercenary Wagner Group has entered the conflict. Central African Republic, outside of the Sahel, is, is another. Why have Russia and the Wagner Group become so popular in spite of such brutal atrocities, maybe maybe worse, because of such brutal atrocities being committed on the ground. I think it's only kind of recently that people in the West have woken up to Russia's popularity in Africa as Russia has invaded Ukraine and received quite a bit of sympathy in the region. Yeah. By the way, maybe a minor nuance. Uh, I the Russians are less successful in Burkina Faso mm. than I thought when I wrote this. Uh, Interesting, because I was seeing I was seeing things from the outside. I traveled to Burkina recently and <laughs> and understood that there is also lots of organization behind this manifestation of sympathy to Russia. It's the yeah, you do have this uh, element of spontaneity that comes from this anti-French and anti-Western sentiment. Uh, so mostly it's a reaction. It's not that Russia is popular, but it's uh, France. France and the West are unpopular. But also you have um, you have political organization, uh, both from from Russian um, 
Russian interlopers and from from local politicians who have an agenda. That's that's is, that's uh, very much the case, for instance, in, in Niger, but also in Burkina Faso. So you have those things going on there. But you're right to say maybe because of them, because in some sense, it is, at, it, at least in Mali, I think that's exactly what happened. Because in the case of Mali, uh, the military have this, well, in all in all the Sahel, the military have the doctrine that, okay, this is war. The war is dirty. Uh, we have to we have to do lots of violence, and, and and the French are not good at it. Of course, they're not good at it because the French have to pay attention to all this human rights dimension. Uh, if the French uh, engage in civilian massacre, uh, even the French public opinion will turn against uh, against uh, the intervention, and and it will become a huge political problem in France. So, plus. They claim that they have this ethics of human rights. And this is seen as something problematic uh, from the point of view of the armies in the Sahel because, well, this is a war. You cannot uh, win, wage war with, uh, with this fine-tuned belief in, in human rights and, and, and also the, um, the whole of law process of, 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 fighting, of fighting jihadists. I, I can give you an example. Since these, the jihadists are not regular military people so they do not have a uniform they you know they kind of they look civilian when you kill one or arrest one who you think is a jihadist especially when you arrest them and you bring them to um, to the court they can be released because you do not take the proper evidence to hold them in in prison so all, all of those things have frustrated the military and then you have also in the population the suspicion that this is actually a way for the Westerners and the, and the, and the, and the French to protect the jihadists. You know, they can, it, it can be interpreted that way. So therefore, the Russians are seen as a, a better alternative to, to deal with the, with the issues and with the problem at, at a military level. That, that's what makes the Russians attractive. The perception that they are more efficient and the unpopularity of the French and the and the, and the Westerners in general. But I think there is also something else going on here that is more troubling. I think we are almost in a kind of process, in, in a kind of moment, I don't know how to describe it, that looks a bit like the 1989. It looks a bit like the fall of the Berlin Wall, like a critical juncture or a turning point. Well, in the case of the 1989, it was very visible. It was clear. You have this wall that fell. Then you have this sense of history ending, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now we have the impression that we are also at a turning point, but there is nothing really very visible that, that shows it. Maybe the Ukraine war, but I don't even know how to interpret that. But you see manifestations of that across the world. And certainly what is happening with Russia in the, in the Sahel and in other parts of Africa, not just in the Sahel, uh, has to do with that. Although I, I'm not sure how to define that a- exactly. Someone, uh, a specialist of the Sahel with whom I was talking the other day, told me, well, it's, uh, it's a new stage in the emancipation of Africans from, from Western tutelage. But then emancipation that kind of brings you in the arms of the Russians doesn't, soon, doesn't, doesn't sound very emancipatory. Uh, so I, I think maybe the the best thing that I can say about this is this is a moment of disorientation. 
probably not just for the Africans or the Sahel, but certainly very much so in that region. You write, quote, Mali, the strategic country in the middle of the Sahel, remains a pertinent geopolitical interest of the West in Africa. As with Ukraine, the West is not going to let it fall to Russia without fighting. But this is not a front in a new Cold War. Putin's Russia has no social and political model to propose to itself or anyone else. And one suspects that, here as in most cases, the West has interests only. And so you write that what defines the present moment is, quote, something with an older pedigree happening in Africa, a scramble for the continent's resources. What resources are at stake in this new great game? One taking place in the absence of those towering ideological rivals of the 20th century. And and how does that, combined with the West framing of the region as not just a font of resources, but as a threat to be contained, how does that distinguish this current conflict from how the Cold War played out in Africa? Maybe not just resources. Well, there are resources, of course. And, and, I, didn't men- and I didn't mention China, but... Yes. Yeah, China is very much part of it because there are countries that have policies of empire, and I think three of them uh, really have policies, viable policies of empire today, the US, China, and and Russia. I'm not sure how viable Russia's policy of empire is, but they are trying to make it viable, including uh, by wrecking havoc in, in a place like Ukraine. But So I think that's where the scramble is. It's You know, the scramble does not begin with what is in the ground. If you remember the scramble for Africa uh, in the 19th century, the Europeans didn't even know what was in Africa. <laughs> you know, They had no idea, and they were many times very much surprised that, oh, but there's nothing here, in fact. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so, so I think the scramble starts with expectations of empire. And, and that's what we have with and then, of course, those expectations of empire that are coming from the type of countries that they call the international sovereigns, you know, the state sovereign states that have the ability to project this massive power uh, elsewhere, the idea that they have of what they want to do with the world. So that's what creates uh, those, those scrambles. So I did mention resources. And of course, of course, there is a, an appetite for African resources from China. Much, much of it is controlled by the West, and West is very hypocritical about it, as if, as if um, China is going to take everything, whereas they have actually the lion's share of it. <laughs> and of course, Russia also is very much interested in. But the, mo- the, the resources are really geopolitical power at the United Nations uh, that would allow those international sovereigns to define the rules uh, the rules of actions to prevent certain actions from happening at international level. We saw that with all this uh, hesitancy of African state to condemn Russian invasion of Ukraine, and and that has become a problem for the for the West uh, in in a sense because it made Russia more capable of of doing whatever it is it is doing, and and, and China is um, helping many African countries because also it gives it gives it leverage in the United Nations where states are supposed to be equal. And and therefore, if you mobilize uh, a a large number of voices from states, you can impose certain things or protect yourself from certain things. So so that is what is really happening here. So it it gets us back to this period of the scramble of Africa, because this is is a period that was dominated by real politics rather than ideological politics. However, I'm not sure now, because you hear about democracy versus 
authoritarianism, I think much of it is is um, lots of talk and hot air. That's the U.S.'s big. That's the U.S.'s big messaging push in Africa right now. Yeah, I don't think it's working. But <laughs> <laughs> there's been a lot of media coverage about the return of coups in Africa to the extent that there's ever much coverage of anything in Africa. But 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 these recent coups you write are really a much more specific phenomenon of former French West Africa. Two coups in two recent coups in Mali, one in Burkina Faso and one in a somewhat more complicated way in Chad. Niger is a bit of an outlier. Its last coup was in 2010. And you emphasize that the coups in Mali and Burkina Faso were not anti-democratic coups, as coups so often are, but rather, quote, defeat coups, meaning that they are both responses to failure in war. Why are these failing military campaigns prompting military coups, which are often accompanied by pro expressions of pro-Russian sentiment? And why why are these coups so popular? What do people hope military rule will accomplish? Well, if you look at the, how those coups happened, the nitty-gritty of it, they came at the end of sustained periods of huge popular frustration at the sitting government. So the coup really kind of, there were consequences of, I wouldn't say aspirations, although in the case of Mali, it's almost that, because if, we, if you remember, the coup in Mali came after six months of uninterrupted uh, protest in Bamako against uh, the government of Ibrahim Boubacar Keita. It just ended... It was, it was welcomed because it ended uh, a moment where the country was not functioning because the, the state could not govern due to the protests and the protests were unrelenting. So the coup kind of clarified things. It just cut the knot. So that's, that's why people like it. it. It was like a relief from, from a very difficult situation. And something like that is the, also the case in, in Burkina. But in Burkina, the coup was not, uh, you know, you... you yeah, the media did show some celebration on the street, but most of the people did not really like the coup, but they thought that, okay, maybe this will give uh, a way out. This will give us a solution that the government is not being able to, you know, is not giving us. Uh, so so let's, give the, let's, let's give them the chance to prove themselves. So that was the attitude in Burkina. And now this attitude is changing and the public opinion is I was in Burkina recently, and one thing that I came away with is that public opinion is turning against um, against uh, the military government in, in Burkina, which is not the case in, in Mali. And you're right to also say that the coup in Chad, I, I'm not sure. So the coup in Chad is interesting because it points to another type of coup that the media are never talking about, the constitutional coup, which is also something that many politicians in French uh, West Africa are doing. Uh, I don't mention French East Africa, Fr- French speaking East Africa, because you do not even have democracy in those in the countries there. But in in the Francophone West Africa, you do have countries who have embraced democracy, and and the leaders are making all those constitutional coup, and and some of the military coup are really a consequence of that. Uh, the one in Guinea, for instance, came from the fact that the civilian president 
had basically forced the constitution to work in a way it wasn't supposed to. So it was a constitutional coup, and, but no one talked about it uh, until you have the military coup. Right. And the one in in Chad, the leader of Chad was killed in battle and his son just took office after he died. And, and that's a constitutional coup as well because he violated the constitution. Yeah. Uh, it was not really a military coup, but, you know, people... Since the Constitution does person, not provide for hereditary succession. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's a, it's a coup in that sense. And since the guy is a military, so people see it as a kind of military coup, but he didn't topple his father. You know, he just violated the Constitution. You write, quote, of the three Sahel countries, Burkina Faso was the one with the more promising politics. More than Malians and Nigerians, Burkinabes have national and patriotic feeling. In Mali, Northerners literally live in a different country from Southerners. Niger is divided between Easterners, still carping long after the fact about how Westerners hogged political power for the first three decades of independence, and Westerners who now feel that they are a Malayan minority. Such riving internal internal geopolitics, though they exist in Burkina too, are bridged there by the intense sense of common destiny that was brought about, you write, by events like the revolution of 1983 that, that brought to power the third worldist leader Thomas Sankara, known as Africa's Che Guevara, who ruled until Blaise Compare overthrew him in 1987 and had him killed, and who was in turn ousted by a popular movement in 2014. I mean, Burkina Faso needed to do a whole episode on it at some point, but how has its history of popular struggle shaped how it is responding to the present conflict in the Sahel? Oh, everything in Burkina is determined by that. I mean, I, <laughs> Burkina is still the theater of antagonism between revolution, Sankara, and rectification, Kampaure. Because Kampaure, when he killed Sankara, well, he took over. He said, now revolution has ended. We are in the process of rectification, meaning rectifying the excesses of the, of the revolution well, reactionary policies, in, 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 in fact. And everything in Burkinabe policy to this date is, you know, determined by that, in my view. And I found out that uh, even the recent coup is actually uh, playing into that politics because uh, very clearly some of the main plotters of the coup are in cahoot with Kampauri, who is living in exile in, uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, but has his party still present in Ouagadougou and has a, a, war, a, 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 a enormous war chest. So people in, in Ouagadougou with whom I spoke are convinced that the coup was largely financed by, by Kampaure. In fact, the coup makers brought him back. He was, he, was, he was sentenced to, I think, perpetuity in prison for the death of Sankara by a Ouagadougou court. But after the coup, he was actually invited back by the coup makers uh, to try a reconciliation process. It didn't work, so Kampauri had to live in a hurry. But, well, for people, uh, for many people in Burkina Faso, okay, this, they, they, now they show their true face. The coup was not really about ending the, 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 the jihadist crisis. It's about restoring Kampauri. So it's about ending revolution. And the evidence that people give to me that this is the case, has everything to do with revolutionary language. Uh, why is organization put in place by the, by the uh, 
uh, cool makers have the term restoration in it. For them, restoration has to do with restoration of a regime, uh, not of anything else. Why, when he ends his, his speech, the, the, the military ruler doesn't say, la patrie ou la mort nous vaincrons, uh, fatherland or death we will vanquish, which is the kind of revolutionary cry, but, but something like pour la patrie nous vaincrons or something like that. So he, he, wasn't, he, he isn't using evolutionary language. And in the mind of you know, uh, public opinion leaders in Burkina, if you're not doing that, it means that you are pro-compare, that you are pro-rectification. So it's really kind of playing out that way in Burkina. You write, quote, There is some appearance of success in the fact that the jihadis are now eschewing the kind of frontal attacks on the local military, which they had led in past years with great success. But they have turned to mass terrorism against local civilian populations, attempting to force them to obey their decrees in the manner of a clandestine state. This outcome requires intensive brutality and plays on the inability of the state, any state, really, to supply security everywhere at all times, especially against a shadowy enemy. In response, local communities are arming themselves for self-protection and a new phase of violence is in the offing. The desired end state is thus out of sight, and given the enormous relevance that this held to Europe's sense of security and safety, so is the end of Franco-European intervention. What does the balance of forces and, and of the fighting look like right now? Because as we're speaking, just I think a couple weeks ago, the last French troops just finally pulled out of Mali. So lots of things is happening, uh, and it's really very hard to follow it because sometimes you don't have the right information. For instance, uh, all of those governments are trying to negotiate with the jihadists, but not in good faith. Neither the jihadists nor the governments are negotiating in good faith. They're trying to win time. And because the jihadists also are under pressure. So, for instance, whenever you hear of large massacres, uh, that's a way for the jihadists to send a message to the government that we're still here and we can still, you know, do lots of bad things if you do not listen to us. And the jihadists are trying to win time to recruit, mainly, recruit more fighters. And now they are basically trying to advance south. So a jihadist outfit has already appeared now in northern Benin, which is a, a country in the Gulf of Guinea that has a border with Niger and Burkina Faso. And they are already kind of conducting some actions and operations in places in Togo, in Ghana, in, in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, at the border with Burkina Faso and those countries. So, so that, that's what they're trying to do. And, and the idea of the French is to propose their services Two states in those uh, in, in the Gulf of Guinea, in addition to in addition to Niger, but maybe in competition with the Russians, <laughs> because the Russians also are trying to offer their services. You write that only strong states could break the cycle of terroristic violence against civilians and permanent French and outside intervention. States that actually provide not just security against violence, but also quote extensive government intervention in all spheres of life, far from the piecemeal NGO work that goes on. Such a thing cannot be exported by France unless it actually recolonizes the Sahel. Obviously, there, as I mean, as some listeners might know, there were West African thinkers that did think of a democratized imperial federation as the way forward. But that didn't happen, obviously. But given 
like looking at some of those questions that that someone like Senghor was asking, given that the Sahel's conditions are so much the making of his position on the extreme periphery of the world system, what what can the Sahel do, absent a transformation of that world system and the region's place within it, to to fix things? Yeah, there there are things that they can do, but you you're right to insist on, on the unfairness inflicted on the Sahel by the international political economy. It's very, when I think of the debt, <laughs> you know, uh, that those very poor states have to repay, it just seems so crazy. And actually, I didn't mention it, but this is part, probably one of the reasons why why the people hate the West there. You, you, you have this um, Western discourse that uh, China is, is trying to colonize the West, the African countries through debt. But this is not convincing to uh, to many in Africa because they, they remember that this is how structural adjustment was imposed on them. And and, and this is a, a kind of the discourse of, of Sankara against debt is, is still in the minds of many. And this is seen as a major factor for, for, for liberation and development. But your question is, okay, that's that's how it is anyway. So what do you do? And and I, I do think that there are things that they can do and that they're not doing because of the way our politics is organized in the Sahel. The states can be reformed. State organizations can be reformed. I, I spoke with politicians in all those countries about such reforms, and they all explained to me that they cannot do it. For instance, one of them say, we cannot reform the customs. The customs are the agency, the force that is in charge of the borders. You live in a part of the world where the conflicts are developing through borders. And you tell me you cannot <laughs> reform the customs. So that's a major problem. And the reason why they say they cannot is because we are practicing electoral democracy. You need to share a lot of your power to lots of groups, people, you know, individuals who are your allies, who have such and such interests, who, you know, democracy. It's kind of idealized, uh, but it's a very messy business. And so if you have to run uh, a country democratically, you have to make so many compromises, including corrupt compromises sometimes, and, and then reforms become very difficult, very slow, very chancy, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a major debate that people in the Sahel and in other poor countries should have about democracy. How do we? It's a very difficult question. I really don't have an answer to that. But when they tell me this is this is what we are facing, we know we need to reform, even to govern. We need to reform the territorial administration. But everything is politicized. You want you want people loyal to you to hang hang on to power, so you cannot just act through meritocracy. Um, so that, that's 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 a conversation that they have. They need to have, and and I actually think that when I'm approached by Westerners, uh, Western organizations, who are tempted by by a mood of introspection, okay, uh, people hate us there. There must be a reason. How, what do we do to change this? One advice that I gave them give them is well, do not try to say to people what to do, but you can help them have the conversation about what to do. So, for instance, about this reform, 
one thing that can, and I'm glad I'm t- telling this to someone who is running a radio station in a way. <laughs> one thing that you can do is, is to support the media because the, the media in, uh, are very critical to democracy. I mean, uh, they're, they're central to democracy, but they're in very poor shape in those countries because of you know, financial problems. You also have them in, in developed countries, but imagine what they are in, in such places. And the media are the ones who should organize this kind of conversation. So if they're supported, uh, this is really an efficient and indirect way to bring some improvement in the region. And, and it's possible. Well, Rahman Idrissa, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Rahman Idrissa is a senior researcher at Leiden University's African Studies Center. He's currently working on a history of the Songhai Empire and the birth of the modern world. He's written about the Sahel for the New Left Review, the New York Review of Books, and the London Review of Books, and I'm posting links to those articles in the show notes. Rahman emailed me to say that while we discussed at some length why the present state of democracy in the region is so dismal, that democracy remains a key solution to the Sahel's problems. Just a few days ago, he told me, he had this long conversation with the leader of Free Afrique, a Burkinabe leftist think tank. During the 2015 transition, after the fall of Blaise Compore, Compore being the leader of Burkina Faso who presided over the coup that overthrew and killed the famed revolutionary Thomas Sankara in 1987, that in 2015, Free Afrique managed to force a change in the mining code that resulted in billions of local currency accruing to one of the poorest municipalities in the country. And then in Niger, another example he related to me, democracy enfranchised so many black descendants of slaves in Tuareg areas that they now control multiple municipalities and have even sometimes managed to establish chieftaincies, positions which wield enormous local authority in the country, the sort of grassroots power that can prevent armed conflict. Anyhow, Rahman wanted me to emphasize that the future need not be so bleak as the history we discuss in this interview. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. Whether podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Tamuz Frankel. Our senior advisors are Thea Rio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, same on Facebook. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or a site like that, please also rate and review us. Those reviews really do introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly introduces us to new listeners is you telling your friends about the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 